OWC Radio number three, recorded January 5th, 2010. An interview with Owen Rubin. Hey folks, Tim Robertson for OWC Radio. Once again, this is episode number three, and this is going to be longer than the first two episodes. The reason being is I interview Owen Rubin. He has a uh, fantastic history in computers and Silicon Valley, and I've known Owen now for I want to say six to eight years. And I found that every time I've had Owen on other podcasts, rather than just simply interviewing Owen, it usually turned into a conversation uh, between Owen and the other co-hosts and myself. And it really never focused on Owen and uh, what he's done in the computer industry and the gaming industry and uh, it's a fascinating story. Very few people have the rich history that Owen Rubin does. And so I was fortunate enough to get Owen to come on OWC radio today and record an interview with me. And he was gracious enough not to hold me to my let's talk for, you know, 20 minutes or so. And we just kept going. And I think it's fantastic. I really hope that you agree and that you enjoy this interview with Owen. I've got some feedback, but I'm going to hold that for later in the week for OWC Radio number four. So you still have time to get your audio clips into me. I've got two so far, uh, plus some email. But it's the feedback from you, the listener, that's really going to help make this show even better. So if you don't mind, and it's uh, not too much of an imposition, I would ask that you send us some feedback. Be on any subject you want, as long as it's, you know, Macintosh or this podcast or other world computing or Macintosh related. And we will share it here on the show. Voice is obviously the easiest way. You can record your voice right on your iPhone and send that file directly to me. The email address is podcast at maxsales.com. If you follow us on the Twitter, it's twitter.com slash OWC radio. And we do have a phone number, just a regular phone number you can call and leave a voice message that way. That number is... 1-801-938-5559. If you didn't catch that, there's a little rewind 30 seconds button on your iPhone. Just click that and write it on the dust on your dashboard. That's what I usually do. Before we get to the interview, uh, February 11th through the 13th, about a month from now, 
little more than a month, but about a month. San Francisco Moscone Center, Macworld Expo, Otherworld Computing will be there. I will be there. I am looking forward to it. We're going to be at booth 1665. I will be wandering the showroom floor for the podcast, doing some interviews with developers, as well as just plain folk. That's right. You know, I really like to pull people aside that I see on the showroom floor or right outside the convention center and talk to them, get them on the podcast, learn a little bit something about them, and share that with the listeners. I I really enjoy that. It's fun. So if you see me at the Macworld Expo and you want to be on the podcast, stop me. Say, hey, Tim, are you doing OWC radio? And I'll say, well, yes, I am. Let's stand over here in this somewhat quiet area, and we'll get you on the show. We'll love that. I really would. Last thing before we jump into the interview with Owen Rubin. It's a number. 210. Any guesses? 210 and change. Actually, I rounded up. So it's between 209 and 210. It's the money I spent over the last four months in iTunes. That's right. $210. That's for apps and music, but 90% apps. I'm thinking support group. You know? Just you and me, and we can compare apps, and I'll be the first to stand up and say, my name is Tim Robertson, and I'm addicted to apps on my iPhone. Now, obviously, $210, I'm not taking food out of my children's mouths, but it's $210. How much have you been spending on the App Store? Is it that much? Is it more? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money for me. I guess if you're Bill Gates, it's not a lot of money. www.maxsales.com. They make this show possible. So if you would be so kind, the next time you're sitting in front of your computer, go to www.maxsales.com and peruse the offerings. Take a look. I bet there's a few things there that will catch your eye. I hope so. Let's get to the Owen Rubin interview. And uh, at the end of that interview, I'll be back. Very few people in the world can claim the following. Having worked at Atari... Apple computer, working for Paul Allen at uh, Interval Research. Is it Interval? Yeah, Interval. Uh, Edison Labs, and a Mac journalist at MyMac Magazine. Owen Rubin, you can uh, lay claim to all of those and a whole lot more. And a few more, yeah. And a few more. And and Pac Bell, a large phone company. 
that's uh that's a resume right there <laughs> you know i i get that a lot when when i i'll send my resume to a recruiter and they go wow this is a great resume too bad we don't have any jobs for you <laughs> yeah that's yeah do you ever get the wow you're you're way overqualified for this Always. I think that's code for we don't want to pay you what you probably think you're worth. Or it's code for you may intimidate some of the other people that work here. And I think the last code is you may, you may be trying to take my job, so I'm not hiring you. <laughs> I've, I've personally seen that. That's happened to me. Uh, it's been a long time, but that's, that has happened to me in the past. So uh, when I've, Go ahead. I've had the, 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 I've had the title of VP of you know, certain technology, IT, uh, engineering, and I, it, but I don't care about titles so much. And I interviewed for a director position and the VP basically said at the end, you know, you should have my job and that really makes me nervous. So I don't think I'm going to hire you. Wow. <laughs> and I, I'm just the other way around. If when I hire people, when I, when I was a hiring manager, I try to find people who will replace me. Yeah. You want so the people I, who are so smart. Yeah, so if I want to go do something else, I can just like drop them into where I was, and I can go do something else. So I always look for people who would replace me. I always looked for people who were at least as smart as me, but hopefully much more smarter than I am. And uh, oh, absolutely, you know, if they do great work, I don't care about credit, but it makes everyone look good, uh, yep. and it makes you look good for hiring that person. Exactly. And I, and I don't even worry if they make more money than me. I've had some managers, when I tell them how much my salary is, they go, oh, well, that'd be more than I would making. So? <laughs> so? Who cares how much they make? If, you know, if I, I find an engineer to work for me, I'll, I pay him what he's worth. He pays more than me, and he's doing the job, and I'm getting stuff done. I don't care. So let's but go. Enough about resumes. Let's go back in time. <laughs> uh, actually, let's, let's stay current. Uh, currently, you are at uh, Edison Labs, LLC. What is Ellison Edison? If I can speak right today, what Edison is Labs. Edison Labs, and what do you do there? So Edison Labs is a, is a new startup that uh, um, a guy I've worked with and worked for in the past, and I created about two years ago. Guys, it's been two years now, maybe a year and a half, two years. Um, originally started as a research organization. We were going to research things like concurrent computing, massively parallel processing kind of stuff, um, new techniques of memories, and we're still doing some of that. But we also needed to make an income, and we said, God, well, gosh, we got these guys who do all this iPhone programming. Let's teach people how to do, be iPhone programmers. So the first public showing of Edison Labs came later where we set up classes for teaching people how to program on the iPhone. And it taught me how to program on the iPhone. I didn't know how to do it at the time. and I, I not only put on the class, I took the class. So um, you know, We hired a, a, a very good instructor, a guy who used to work at Apple, used to run Apple University, uh, and he gave the first class, and I sat through it. And at the end of the class, I was writing four-day class. I was writing apps. It was so cool. Do you think that's more to do with his teaching technology, his teaching skills, or do you think it has to do with the SDK that Apple provides free of charge to anybody who wants to write an app for the iStore or for the iPhone? I think, I think a little of both. The so if you can, I'm not an object-oriented programmer, or at least I wasn't. I was very comfortable. I'm, I've always been an embedded system engineer. I like twiddling the bits at the bottom. So I've always written an assembly language and C languages like that, things that, are, things that are very close to the hardware. And I found that Objective-C was very similar to C with a bunch of stuff stuck on it to make it objective. 
and uh, you know, make an object language. And so it was very easy for me to make the transition from C to Objective C. I just had to learn how some of the object stuff worked, but that you can learn in a book in about you know a couple hours. And he was a good instructor. He stepped you through from, you know, first launching the tools to running small application examples to how to look things. The hardest part for me, how to look things up. You know, you want to do something, and unfortunately with Objective C, there are twelve different ways to do it. And nobody really tells you which is the right way to do it. Uh, and you have to learn how to use the documentation. But once I got comfortable with that, you could knock stuff out pretty fast. So is, are, is your company actually creating content for the iPhone now, or is it still just teaching? We've pretty much stopped the teaching for a while. Um, I, think we, I think the markets got pretty saturated there. We noticed that they were getting less and less signups over time. So we're kind of restructuring what we're doing. We're creating a, uh, a membership kind of thing where we're going to offer, as I say, soup to nuts, end-to-end kind of services from startup application programming to support for programming to teaching uh, specialized areas. We're going to do some on, you know, uh, downloadable videos. You can look to see how to do, to do training and teaching. So get away from the actual classroom to letting things go more online. And then add to that marketing services, sales services, working with Apple and the iTunes store, because a lot of people still struggle with how to do that. And today it's, it's important. Uh, what is there, 120,000 apps almost now and yeah, growing at an exponential rate? I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon. I mean, it, so the popularity just, is just, I mean, it's undeniable. Huge. It's huge. I mean, I, my, all my little slots on my device are full. I can't put any more... I see something else I want to I want to download, and I have to decide what I'm deleting that day. That's just that many apps that are very cool. But the problem is, if you're a small guy developing and you've developed the coolest app in the world, how does anybody know about it? You, you know, when Koi Pond came out, what was there? A couple hundred apps. Koi Pond shoots to the top, becomes incredibly successful because it was the coolest app, and it was easy to stand out. Today, there are thousands and thousands of very good apps how do you get into that list so a lot of that has to do with marketing so we teach marketing and work with you to market your app to get it to be known you know so we have a some people who will show you how to do that sometimes you can do it for free sometimes it requires a lot of work there's ways to spend money but um, that's the only way to get your app to the top these days is to actually know how to actively market it yeah I think that's there's going to be word-of-mouth things and of course the popular companies that's been doing it for a while, like Gameloft, for instance. Anytime they right. release something new, it's going to be a big seller because it's Gameloft, and everyone knows it's well, probably... Well, they're a big company. Yeah, exactly, and, and they know it's going to probably be a quality product because, for the most part, all the games that they've released on the iPhone has been well-received. But, yeah, but how do you... they also advertise a lot, right? They so do. they spend money on marketing. They spend marketing advertising, and they have the budgets to do that. But if you or I were going to do it, do can we spend $100,000 on advertising? Probably not. <laughs> so do you think you know, I mean, that you probably have an advantage? An ad-supported app is a better way to go than selling it or You know, I don't know yet. I I haven't been able to get numbers, which I'd like to, on how much money people can really make on ad-supported apps. And I see an interesting trend in applications right now is the prices are rising. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that, but the average price seems to be creeping up closer to 2.99. I think that's healthy though. Up, well, the iPhone set a very strange low watermark for for software development. It's almost almost like you say unhealthy. People were 
you know, saying, oh, darn, and then I'm not spending that. If someone spent six months developing a strong piece of software, you know, a buck ninety nine is a bargain. When you remember you used to buy apps for your Macintosh and they cost twenty nine to fifty nine dollars for the small ones. You know, what? Apple uh, today announced that the App Store tops three billion downloads. Wow, that's, that's just amazing. That's, but again, how do you and stand it, out in there? Well, you know, it's 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 very funny. I think. And you watch Apple's computers. This is my prediction over time. And I think the, the, the big touchpad, whatever it's going to be when it comes out, is a stepping stone to Apple sort of eliminating the classical computer that we're used to using and coming out with computers that are all, and I'm going to call them applet-based, like you get on the iPhone, where everything's a small little app that does a particularly specialized thing. And you can get all the functions, but you won't be buying, sorry, Microsoft, but you won't be buying Word applications Unless you're an alt, you know, a professional trying to write a book or something, because you won't need to. Yeah. And this is the second time Apple's done that. The first time it didn't work. If people remember OpenDoc. Yes, I do. Right. So the concept of OpenDoc was that you were going to um, have a document-centric system, and then you'd plug in little tiny applets, one for word processing, one for spell checking, one for grammar checking, and you'd buy these tiny little applets. And all the mega corporations fought it. And it didn't come out, but I think that's where we're going again. Well, that Everything's was also Apple. Apple's first web browser was CyberDog, and that right, was right. part of OpenDoc. Yep, that was the whole idea. But remember, it's like sort of like Chrome is going to be right, plug-in kind of applications where you have a document-centric view as opposed to an application-centric view. And I think that's where Apple's heading. I think the tablet will be the first step, and and we'll watch. I think over the next three four years, you'll start seeing. PowerBook-like devices, bigger computers that are more that run all those applets, widgets, if you will. You know, although not quite the widgets we're used to today. But same idea. We're and Apple's not alone. No, they're definitely not alone. There's a lot of companies going down that path, and I think the smartphone industry is kind of leading the way right now. Oh yeah, I played with a a, a Droid. You like it? TM Lucasfilm. Um, David Pogue said nailed it he said it's really a guy's geeky toy you know this is not something you hand your wife to use it it's sharp edges it's, it's really rough it's got a beautiful screen sliding it open is like pushing it through sand i think he said and that's what it felt like but i played with it for about an hour and a half i was staying with some people this weekend and he had one and i was very impressed by it you know and they have an app store and you can go download apps it works very similar although their, their apps there were on 299 to 499 average price Hmm. Uh, so things I've seen for a buck on the iPhone were like a buck ninety nine or two ninety nine there, but the App Store there is growing like crazy. But it it's getting close, right? It's not as it's not as elegant yet as as the iPhone. And I kept finding myself, you know, trying to do pinch, squeeze things to like zoom in, not and a working. little not working. And a little thing in the lower corner would pop up with a magnifying glass that would say plus minus so it's somehow they detect you're screwing with the screen yeah and they go oh you you must want to zoom <laughs> it's it's called not an iphone <laughs> not an iphone yeah. it'd be and it'd I've be the greatest the phone of all time if apple hadn't had the iphone out there already well you know google releases i guess it's this week or next week their own their own android phone yeah and Someone basically said it looks like a giant, it looks like a larger iPhone and it's thinner. HTC is building it. It's a solid glass piece that's a little thinner. Uh, still won't have multi touch because Droid doesn't have that. Android doesn't have that. But 
you know, they're pushing the boundaries. I played with a pre too, Web OS. That's, I, that's I did pretty too. sweet. I didn't like the pre. It's pretty sweet. It felt. I don't like the phone itself. No, I think it the felt Web clunky. OS. And WebOS is, an, I think, is nice. I like the way they implemented the OS, though. I think, you know, someone else who will, if they can stay alive long enough, will have an interesting operating system for applets. So we're about a month out now from the beginning of the 2010 Macworld Expo there in San Francisco, and that's where you're at. Yep. Um, and you'll be here, right? I, I, yes, I will. And my, my question is, obviously you live in San Francisco, so it's not a, a difficult decision for you to <laughs> to decide to go to the Macworld Expo. It's like, well, what am I going to do today? Uh, I guess I'll go down to the Macworld. Yeah, go get on BART, to get on a little BART train, go across the bay and go there, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I will definitely be there. Do it's, you I, – I what, what is, is anything exciting you about the Macworld Expo this year, or are you kind of – I'm reading a lot of articles online where people, some people are very ho-hum about it, and others seem to be fairly excited. Um, I'm kind of, yeah. I'm kind of excited myself. I'm looking forward to, you know, it's it's different because for me, it's like I wonder who's going to be there. That's what I wonder. For me, it's you know we're standing on a cliff right here with MacWorld and Apple not not being there, which I just think is the biggest mistake in the world. Um, We'll see if it survives. I'm hoping it will survive, and that, that that's what I want to see. Will this? Can this show be successful enough without Apple to draw people there? Uh, I'm hoping the answer is yes, because for me, Macworld was never about going to see Apple. Apple is right. I can go see their stuff in the i you know in the Apple Store if you're lucky enough to live near one or online, so you can see most of it. But it's all the companies that surround Apple that make the Mac products and the iPhone products so cool that make all these accessories and stuff, those are the guys I go to visit. Absolutely. And so I'm hoping they continue to be there because that's the audience. For me, that's that's the reason for going and that their audience hopefully wants that. And I think a number of them are afraid that, you know, if Apple's not there to have that big anchor in the middle of the of the of the floor to pull everything together that people won't go. And I've heard a few companies who said they're not going to be there this year, but I, I'm wondering if that's more to do with the economy than to do with the fact that Apple's not there. I think it's probably a combination of both. Other world computing, uh, we we will be there, um, but our booth will be smaller than it has been in the past. But I don't see that as a negative. I, Does I that mean I spend less money there because you won't have as many products? <laughs> <laughs> that very well could be. I always hate walking up to that booth. I must say because I just go. Oh, oh yeah, I was gonna buy that. Oh, oh wait, I, I was gonna buy that. So. <laughs> it's I, you know, I'm going to do a podcast every day from the Macworld Expo, and Excellent. apart from Otherworld Computing, um, I, I would like to focus on the smaller companies while I'm there, the smaller developers, and I oh, want to yeah. bring you know those product announcements, uh, this great graphical piece of software, and whatever it happens to be, a great utility, a, a new disk utility type of software. Um, that's what the Macworld Expo for me traditionally has been, finding the little hidden gems that I agree with you. nobody would have known about had the, uh, somebody from the Mac press not been there to, to report on it. One of my favorite places in Macworld always to go was there's a – and I don't know if they'll still set up this way, but there was a group of what I call you know, microcubes. Yeah, the developers pavilion of, thing. Yeah, the pavilion, right? I've always that was one of my favorite places to walk through because those were the emerging companies, the brand new companies that are just coming out that have something really cool to show. Um, in fact, one of the I'm 
while I'm talking to you, I'm going to go see if I can search for it. There was one last year that I really liked that uh, synchronized music. You know, one of the problems is I have multiple Macs and my my iTunes folders on them don't. There's no real synchronization between them. Mm. And I'll, I'll 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 get a I'll have a CD in my hands. Oh, I like that song, and I'll copy it on my laptop, but I'll forget to put it on my iMac. You ever think and, of maybe I, going with uh, a NAS? Well, you know, I thought I actually do have a network storage that I use device I use uh, one I reviewed from uh, was that a C product I think back there a little plug uh, and and it helps right but the problem is that then the network has to be up to use it yes. my, that means if Mac is somewhere else I don't have access to it and and it's it's more about when I add music to a machine if I'm sitting at my iMac and I hear something I, sometimes I'll just record it with a with a stream capture and edit edit it clean and say oh that's a cool song I'll save that. And then it ends up on one machine and not on the other. And, of course, you can only sync your iPhone to one of the devices. So I had this issue where my PC has iTunes on it. And it has some music on it. My MacBook 13 has iTunes on it. And it has some songs. And my iMac has songs on it. And it's supposed to be the library. But I never remember to move them all around. And this one company, and I'll find it here while we're talking at some point, came out with this great little application that you pointed at all the libraries and it says, here's the songs that are the same, here's the songs that are different, do you want to move them together? And it does this synchronization for you. And uh, he was back there in the little developer pavilion. It turns out someone I know, because I've seen his work And it before. works over Mac and PC. Yes. Because it just looks at folders. It looks at the iTunes um, library information. Oh, and excellent. It, and I was going to review it on my Mac, and I didn't because it had some bugs in it that actually caused me to lose some music at the first release. Yeah. And he told me it's because I didn't read the documentation properly, and so we had a little disagreement on how that should work. Um, Mac and he's users upgraded. generally do not read documentation. Exactly. Yeah, if, if right? it's not intuitive it, enough to use right out of the box, then there's a problem. If I have to read so the manual said, because it's deleting my music... The problem, the onus shouldn't be on me, the user. It should be on the developer to realize nine out of yep. ten Mac users are not going to read the documentation. They're just going to run the software. So here was the message. It said, "It said this program can't find this song. Would you like to delete it?" So my belief was it would delete the entry in the iTunes. No, it actually found the song and deleted the song from my hard drive. Nice. And not nice. only did it delete it, it didn't put it in the trash, it just deleted it. It just you know, deleted it. Some applications oh, can do this. I, that magic delete I always yeah. call where it doesn't go to the trash. And I called him, I said, hey, this just deleted a song. And he goes, well, it said it was going to delete it permanently. And I go, yeah, but it said it couldn't find it. So how did it delete something it couldn't find? Right? <laughs> so <laughs> I just assumed it would delete the entry in the listing because it, you know, the iTunes, you know how that happens. iTunes sure. will have a song listed. And, and it reads all those, so I assumed it didn't know where the song was. But it actually went out and deleted the actual library, the actual folder of a whole album I had. And it wasn't an album I still had anymore. So I was a little upset about that. But, I can understand. Uh, but to go back to your original point, it was a cool new application uh, by a developer that was new to that particular field that was doing some really cool stuff. And once I got past, you know, okay, now I know how it works, I use it all the time. And if I can remember, the, I'll come back to it at some point and I'll remember the name uh, or you'll find it, me reviewing it on my Mac at some point. <laughs> we'll keep an eye out there for that I then. Just, keep an eye out for it. I can't remember the name. I'm just feeling really stupid. But I have 270 items in my applications folder at the moment. So, so looking at your resume, if you will, Okay. and I look at 
the three that I have listed right in the middle. And I've got you working for Atari, Apple, and a f- co-founder of Microsoft, Paul Allen. Right. That's, at least in the 70s and 80s, those were the three companies. I mean, and, if and you're going to so, work for um, anybody, that those were the companies to work for. So which was so first? Atari, Atari was first, right out of college. So and Atari's a great story. So I, I went, I was at UC Berkeley as a both in, hardware engineering and software engineering. I had a mixed uh, major, electrical engineering and computer science. And I got this chance. I had seen Pong. I, you know, what are you when you come out of college in, in 1920 somewhere in there? Uh, Pong, cool. These video games. They had come out with some of the early all hardware, no programming games. That's right. the way Hardwired. original games were. Hardwired games. They were. TTL logic games and I thought these were the coolest things in the world so I went I got a chance to interview at at Atari uh, just before I was graduating and I went through the whole interview process they were a little tiny company stuck down in Los Gatos in this little smaller building and went through the whole interview and then I got a call back saying well we're not hiring you it's like why and they go well we don't think you're a very good hardware engineer and I said that's strange I was interviewing for a programmer job (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and they went oh you were I said yeah they go oh well come back down so I went back down the next day and I talked to three more people and they hired me on the spot uh, <laughs> for some reason they thought I wanted to be a hardware designer and that in my last three years of college I had focused on software design not hardware design although I know hardware design I, so I joined Atari as the fourth or so programmer up to that point they had a couple hundred employees for manufacturing and everything and a half a dozen engineers that were all doing hardware design and I was a firmware engineer who understood how to put processors in hardware so I joined as one of the group now that was going to take games that were all hardwired logic and turn them into games to program awesome and I joined 1970 early in 1976 that's how long ago that was so this was before the big Atari boom before the big Atari boom we it was before, I mean, my first game I did there was, uh, this is kind of funny. So I joined this company and I was in this, they were growing fast enough that I was in a second building. So I wasn't in the main building where all the hardware engineering was. And um, my boss said, here, we want you to come up with a game idea. So I came up with this game idea called Cannonball uh, to shoot a guy out of a cannon through a hole in the wall. <laughs> and the hole, the hole could move. And, they, and it was determined by how much powder you put in the cannon. So how fast he would shoot and whether he hit the wall. And I did it all by hand. I hand-coded it. I hand-assembled it. I typed it into a teletype. We had Model 33 teletypes, the the clunky ones on paper. And I was saving my work on paper tape. So I got the whole thing. I got it done like in about three, four weeks. I had it to a point that they're ready to review it, the early review. My boss says, well, can we see the computer listings? What computer listings? He goes, well, how did you write this? I said, oh, I did it all by hand. Here, it's on the teletype. And he goes, you know, we have this whole computer system and an editor and this thing you go there. And, like, <laughs> and he takes me to the other room. No one had shown me that there was these two computer operators sitting at these large PDP machines, large for the time, who would, you would write it on paper, they would type it in, they would keep the computer form, they'd give you a big printout on large paper and a paper tape to load into your development system to try the game out. And I was like, you mean I could have like done all this work, this four weeks worth of working in like three days? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
we were, we're, we were wondering what was taking you so end. long over there. Well, that's what he said. He said that. He goes, we didn't know why it took so long to get this far. It's like, And I thought I had like screamed through this thing because I was oh, yeah. designing it all. You're like, three weeks. Oh. Beat that, suckers. It's <laughs> funny. And so once I learned that, things went faster. And I was there uh, nine years. So you left Atari for where? Valley. So um, Warner bought, Warner Commu Communications, the Warner Brothers company, bought yep. Atari at some point during that whole stay. And in and around 1984, um, the, the, the first video game crash occurred. And Warner split the company in two. They sold all the consumer stuff, the home computers, the home video game cartridges, all that stuff, to Jack Tramiel, the Tramiel brothers, who were going to take it off and do Atari they computer. Did. Right. And, and they sold the, the rest of the stuff, got held by Warner and sold, I think, to Namco at the time to be coin-op, but they wanted to cut the company down in size greatly. I'm sorry, did that just come through my mic? Nope, you're good. Um, and... They started laying people off, and a bunch of guys I worked with had left Atari about maybe about eight, ten months before that to go back to work for Nolan Bushnell, who had left Atari quite a while ago. And they had started a new company, I think it was called Vidia, V-I-D-E-A at the time. And Bally, the guys who do Bally slot machines and all that, had bought Vidia because they wanted to be in the video game business and wanted a West Coast office. And I got invited to join Valley. So I was basically one of the people who left during the big split. And I went to Valley and I started doing the same things there. I designed coin-op games, you know, arcade games. That's all I did was arcade games, by the way. Um, for Valley, their competitor. You know, I left on a Friday and started on a Monday. And hmm. uh, did a bunch of stuff there, including a motion simulator game, a game you sat in and actually moved. One of the first motion simulator games... Uh, we had a half a dozen of them at Great America, not too far from us. It was fun to watch people play. That was the coolest part about doing those kind of games, is you made them and stuck them in the arcade, then we would go down there not wearing any Atari logos or Bally logos and pretend to be someone playing in the arcade and watch people play it to see you know, what worked and what didn't work. That's real market research right there. It is market research, but, if I, but when you're the creator and you see someone use your stuff, it's just and having fun. It was just felt very cool. The last game I did for Atari was called Major Havoc. It was a sort of a, an obnoxious, silly game about a bumbling space hero who carries no weapon. And uh, <laughs> it was all a play on words for Digital Equipment Corporation. You know, he attacks the Vaxes, the V A X X, I call them. Well, Vax was the big deck equipment of the time and the homeworld was Maynard well Maynard Massachusetts is where decks uh, corporate headquarters were and we just did this whole silly game uh, and when we put that out for test I remember this greatly we went down to watch people playing it and there were as you played the game you could learn two and three digit codes that would jump you through the game so if you came back later they would jump you f further in the game so you didn't have to play the whole beginning part of the game again and so you the second day I went save points well, there were sort of save points, yeah. We call them warp codes, but yeah. So, you know, when you got to level nine, it would say the level eight warp code is 724, right? So if at the beginning of the game you dialed in 724, it would jump you to that point of the game. So you didn't have to play levels one through six sure, again. absolutely. Which, which were now going to be boring, okay? And you got a bonus point for it. So we did, um, I remember the codes. It was uh, 23... 
and 46 were the first two codes. And then we did three-digit codes after that. And you had to do them in order. But anyway, I come down the second day, and there's about 18 pieces of paper taped to the side of the cabinet. <laughs> okay. And someone has written yeah. oh, 0001020304, and then they're crossed off. So as people were playing them, they try a code, and if they didn't get it, they'd reach over with a pen that was attached to the side of the cabinet, and they'd scratch <laughs> out that code. Oh, that's <laughs> so, funny. So they learned all the codes long before they got that far in the game. Uh, which And they were all two-digit codes originally, which is why some of them went to three-digit codes to make them a little more difficult. Uh, but the things you see when you watch people play are just hysterical. You know, you, you can work very hard on a design. And I think the iPhone is the same development issue. You work very hard, think you've got it, and then watch someone use it. And they do things you didn't even conceive they would do with what you're writing. So and, you went to Apple eventually. How do you make I, a yeah, transition so went, from a a game maker, which you had, but how how long were you at Bailey then? So I was at Bailey almost four years. So, so four I was, years, I think so thirteen years. Yeah, thirteen years of game design. So in between that, I started. I I went to work with a guy who used to work in the consumer division of Atari. His guy named Rob Fulop had started a company called Interactive Productions, and I joined him as his like director of technology to help build an engineering team. And we, the very cool product we built there is this thing called Rapid Jack's Casino. We developed a system that would allow network gameplay of a casino game. So blackjack, poker, things like that, with multiple people for a company that probably most people don't remember the name, Quantum Link. Oh, yes, Does I know. mean anything? Yeah, yeah, because... Quantum Yeah, I know exactly where you're AOL. going. AOL. Yep. Yeah, they became AOL. So the first... Probably one of the first multiplayer online games was this thing we invented in Interactive Productions. And it ran on the Apple II, uh, an IBM PC, a Commodore 64, and a Macintosh. And this company also did other consulting, and I got did a bunch of work for Apple, and that's how I got found by Apple. They said, oh, we need, we need uh, Apple II GS programmers. You obviously know this. Come work for Apple. And uh, that was, like, really cool. I said, oh, absolutely. Um, didn't know much about the Mac other than I had, you know, had seen it early on, but and had a 128K Mac. But after I got there, I was in the Apple II group for maybe a year and jumped across to the Mac group because I really to the wanted future. to do Macintosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, at, at the time, the even though Apple II was still selling well, the writing was on the wall. You know, the Apple II was an expensive. The, I think it was the Apple IIe was the big machine at that time. Uh, and I was working on the, something called the Apple II GS. I have no idea what GS stood for. Good system. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and the Apple II GS was like, a, was like a Mac version of the Apple II. It had a finder and it had icons. And, it, you know, it was not the Mac, but it was close. And, but it was 2400 bucks, which is pretty expensive. Sure. Now, it was color. It was color where the Mac was black and white. But the Mac 2 had just come out, so but that Mac 2 was, what, about $4,800, I think, when it came out. And one of the things that I noticed in the, being in the Apple II group for education, that the Mac was missing was a low-cost Mac. All the Macs were very expensive, a low-cost color Mac. So the, one of the transition points for me to moving into the Macintosh field was I wanted to build a low-cost color Mac. Low-cost LC, Mac LC. That was the project, and I was a key contributor and developer on that device to do and it was originally supposed to be a thousand dollar mac at the time and what did it at come the time the, 
$1,800. Yeah, not too far off. Well, what happened is I did all these things to try to cut the cost. So I instead of having two serial ports, I put one serial port on it. Instead of having a SCSI drive, I put an IDE drive in it. Uh, we worked with Sony who made the floppies to take away the inject and multiple motors. So it was a little clunkier floppy, but it worked. Cut, cut about $12 out of the cost of the floppy at the time, which was significant. Um, we did all these things, uh, and when Apple Marketing looked at it, they said, oh, that's not a Macintosh. Strangely, you know, fast forward 10 years, they did all that stuff. Yeah, and they called it the iMac. Right? They called it the iMac, yeah. yeah. I was said I did the first iMac, I just didn't know, I didn't know the letter I at the time. That's right, so yeah, you Mac didn't realize LC, the significance. The Mac LC was this little pizza-thin box kind of I, thing. I remember them well, because the LCs kind of spawned the Performa line as well. Yeah, yeah. They did. In fact, that's where they went to. The LC lines became the Performa line. Yeah. There were some bad performers. Yes, I had two of them. But the idea was... <laughs> that, yeah. Sadly, I One apologize. of them I still have, but the one that I still have, uh, the Performa 410. I mean, uh, you know, a, a lot of my firsts online were done on that machine, so it was kind of, I'm going to keep this one for... I, I don't even have a monitor I, I can connect to it now, but... <laughs> You know, if, if if it's something that's kind of significant to you, you know, it doesn't you take much space. You can get a VGA adapter. Yeah, why? You can get a little adapter <laughs> plugs in the back. Well, There's yeah, really no point. Sitting at my feet right now, uh, this is funny. Sitting at my feet right now is the, is, ah, sorry, is my Mac LC and a Kensington Turbo Mouse trackball right next to it. <laughs> and it still runs. I, I kept it because it was just the first Mac I did. Yeah, and, why not? Uh, I stayed at Apple that. long enough to work on a, bu a bunch of projects. Worked on the Duo, which was one of my favorite laptops, and still don't understand why this day they don't do a docking portable anymore. Uh, made a lot of sense, but I don't know. I, I don't. I can't say that they're not smart for not doing it because I, I think Apple might be doing pretty well right now. Well, maybe it's wireless technology has made it unnecessary. Right? That's true. Uh, you bring your you bring your PowerBook home and your your uh, Bluetooth keyboard works on it and it connects wirelessly to your network and and your your NAS storage so you don't need an extra or hard time drive machine and, with or a, time machine right with I mean, time all, capsule all and your keyboard and mouse is wireless and wireless yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean I love that an iMac today not the only wire coming out of the back is the plug and if they could figure out how to do that wirelessly they would do that too in a heartbeat <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Power by osmosis, or by microwave. That's it. Uh, so that that I stayed at Apple for a while, and then uh, I got shoehorned into a job I really didn't like, and I did it for about two years. And they told me I couldn't get out of it unless I found someone to take it over, and no one really wanted that job. It was the integration team that was responsible for pulling all the software around Apple together to do system releases. So you were everybody's enemy and friend at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Because you'd have to look at software and say, that's not going on the disk. You know, that, that's, that sucks. Testing doesn't like it. And then, of course, that whole team doesn't like you anymore. Uh, or you go to a hardware team that wants their machine to be covered, but they're not far enough along to have it ready to go, so you have to drop them from the disk. Because you remember... That, so Apple had a weird marketing problem. The only way you could release a new Mac computer was to have a system release that came along with it. Right. Right? So Apple computers used to come out in clumps, right? You get three computers and there'd be a pause. You get four computers and there'd be a pause. Um, so one of my claims to horror at Apple was the uh, 
I did it with one other guy. The creation of something was called the system enabler. And we basically figured out how to let a new machine boot the previous OS. I remember the system so enabler. The hardware, yeah, there was thousands of them in the system folder. Yeah. People didn't know what to do with them. Yeah, well, it wasn't supposed to be like that. The agreement I had when we came up with this concept was that the system guys would roll them in every six months. So you would have at most three or four or five of these files. And I think after the first year, there was about 35 of them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so then they tried making them invisible so that people wouldn't throw them away. Because people would go and say, what's this file? And they'd throw them all away. And then the system wouldn't boot. What we did is basically came up with a mechanism to let that file tell the system how to boot hardware it didn't know about. And it worked. It was very cool. And it now let a, Apple release computers when they were ready, not when the system software was ready. And that was around system six, system seven time. And remember, system releases were taking longer and longer to happen because the system was getting bigger and bigger. So it took longer to get computers out. And, and uh, the problem is Apple's marketing didn't know how to deal with being able to release a CPU whenever they wanted to. So they just started releasing CPUs like crazy. And, they and sales went in the toilet. Yeah. Yeah, and sales went in the toilet because people say, oh, I'll wait for the next one. Well, I'll wait for the next one. Yeah, because and the next one part was of just an incremental increase from what was out there before. So, well, that's not quite the boost and the jump that I thought it was going to be, so I'll wait a little bit longer. And there was always a new one. Yeah. And it really hurt their sales. And I remember Michael, <clears throat> Michael Spindler at the time telling me um, that it was my fault and I should stop innovating. <laughs> now my two innovations key innovations for Apple were the system enabler and bootable CD both of which in the long run saved Apple millions of dollars but to be told to stop innovating that's the reason I went to Apple in the first place and you know I couldn't get out of this job and I now was told to stop coming up with clever ideas so it was just time to move on and I actually left uh, Apple and went to Pacific Bell and uh, worked with some Apple people that some co-workers, we, a bunch of us went there, and we created the first broadband network in the United States. I, I don't think the so that was broadband a, network's going to take off, Owen. Nobody needs high-speed internet. Well, that, <laughs> well high-speed internet, well, you know, it, it, PacBell Internet was around, and uh, they were doing dial-ups, lots of dial-ups, and, and DSL lines at the time. And we, the phone company was looking for a way to stop, get rid of the twisted pair network. You know, running... Maybe most people don't know this. The phone is typically a pair of wires that runs from some central office to your house or to your office. Right. It's a twisted pair of wires. And for every phone, you need another twisted pair of wires. Now, there's, there's multiplexing and stuff on top. I won't go into the technical details of ways to en enhance that. But it's a very costly method because no one really kept track of all the wires. So to install a phone, you'd have to send a guy to the, out to the house, and you have to have a guy in the central office, and they got to find a pair that isn't used and hook you all together, and it was becoming a nightmare and very expensive. So Pacific Bell and other phone companies came up with this idea of using HFC networks, hybrid fiber coax, run fiber to the neighborhood, coax to the house, and then run the phone off the coax. Oh, since you have the coax there and all this extra bandwidth, we can run television. So phone companies were going to become cable TV companies. That was really the goal. And during the development of that, we also discovered we could run cable data on those. And so Pac Bell in 1995 deployed in San Jose the, what do they call it, the trifecta, the triple play, phone, high-speed data, and television over a single wire to the house. Which seems to be all the rage and, nowadays in 2010. 
I mean, Comcast we had people and moving. AT&T and Verizon, everybody, everybody offers that. Yeah, absolutely. And we had people moving into the neighborhoods to get what we were offering was 10 megabits per second down and 5 megabits per second up yeah. data for like $42 or something. And uh, then we got bought by SBC and Ed Whitaker, the now CEO of GM, the CEO of at and the time, basically said, and I quote, how y'all doing? I got no appetite for doing video. <laughs> and he basically he basically put a knife in it and uh, he closed it, shut the whole thing down because he just didn't get – that wasn't his business. His business was long distance and telephone and that's what he wanted to do. And I think, I think video was a distraction for you know, AT&T at the time, which was SBC at the time. So here's the funny part of this story. We sold our stuff to AT&T. It became AT&T Broadband. Okay, so remember AT&T Broadband? It was pretty successful. They were sure. doing HFC networks. You could get the trifecta from them. You know the three, the big triple play. Then SBC started looking at buying AT&T. About the time AT&T sold the whole system to Comcast. <laughs> <laughs> now, when AT&T bought it from us, they threw away all our software. They threw away all our interfaces. They redesigned set top boxes and and in cable stuff to cut costs considerably. And then when Comcast bought it from AT&T, they did the same cost cutting again. So Comcast is basically, and I apologize to everybody, an ugly stepchild of the system we developed at Pac Bell in 1995. Degeneration, right? Two generations back. Yeah, two generations, yeah. yes. Wow. Yeah, it's, and and uh, when, I look at, when I look at Comcast today and I go, man, that's basically the system we originally designed but they've cheapened it up greatly. You know, we, had, we were a phone company. We had this, they call it 5-9 mentality, 99.999% uptime. That's, you know, your phone. It has to run. It has to run. Absolutely. Uh, has to run. And, and since we were the phone system as well as all these other services, all these services had 5-9s. AT&T thought that was ridiculous. It's cable television. Get rid of it. They, remember the AT&T phone was a, considered a secondary phone. Yeah not primary phone, and they told you in the agreement that it, it, it was subject to blackouts, and Comcast Telephone, they say the same thing. You know, they had problems with 911 issues, they weren't phone companies, so it just became awful. But it has grown back. And I must admit, Comcast today is a lot different than it was when it took over. Their systems are a bit more stable, although I still don't like their set-tops. No, AT&T, I have a, a set-top from them, and I, they're, I'm not happy with it. It's not good. No. AT&T just released Uverse, which um, shows recently. promise. I, I I keep thinking I might want to switch to that myself, but eh, it's I don't very know. cool. So, but it's a different system. AT&T uses a very fast DSL line and does all the switching of your video back at the head end and just streams you the channels you're watching. But they could have all done so, this, you know, ten years ago. It was the original design, yeah. But the networks weren't ready for it. No. But anyway, now with that system, it's very cool. If you haven't played with it, it's you know when you when you scan through channels mm-hmm. in the guide, they give you a live little picture in the guide of what's on that channel. Yeah, I, there's something about that. It's very appealing to me. I, I don't know why I haven't done it yet. I've got Comcast business account here in the studio, and I've got Comcast right. television, high speed, and telephone at home. Uh, I just I don't know. Once you get locked into a system, just, it's kind of. I already give AT and T two hundred dollars a month for my iPhone and my wife's iPhone. So, 
Right. You know, and, if yeah, I switch over, all of a sudden so I'm giving $500 to AT&T, and that's, that's a mortgage payment. Well, it's, <laughs> it's a bundled system, right? Yeah, it is a mortgage payment. It's a bundled system they want to sell. So it concludes your home phone, which is uh, voice over IP technology. It yep. includes, and it's actually pretty good. It includes well, cable television. Comcast isn't too bad there. High-speed data. Um, I, I won't. Uh, this is a public show. I won't say anything nasty much about Comcast, but... I just think they're an evil company. Any any company that wakes me up at seven o'clock in the morning to tell me I'm using too much bandwidth. Yeah, the there's internet, a problem there. But yeah. won't tell me but won't tell me how much I'm using or what number I should strive to hit to stay under. Two hundred and fifty gigs a month. To, well, it wasn't at that time they called me. They didn't have that number. And I was only at one. Well they still say unlimited. That's what gets me. Unlimited right. doesn't mean unlimited. Right. Uh, if they say it's unlimited, then it's anything. It's how much you want to eat, right? I, yeah, I just and you and yeah, I was paying seventy two dollars for it because I wasn't a cable subscriber. Yeah. So they also have this this cheat. So it's forty two dollars a month if you're a cable subscriber, but guess how much basic cable is? Oh, it takes you to seventy two dollars a month. So if you're not a cable subscriber, they still charge you seventy two dollars a month because they say the forty two dollar month is only for cable subscribers. And so I just had this problem with the company being not very good, in my opinion. Hmm. They weren't customer-oriented. They were kind of nasty when you talked to them. They didn't solve problems fast. They charged too much. And so I went to AT&T and DSL because it's 35 bucks a month, and, and it works just as well. And they don't harass me ever. They get things working. I can tell um, you um, I went, the, the flip side of the Comcast discussion, though, is I got to the studio yesterday morning, and... Uh, Plugged in. You have business, though. Business. You have business service, and that's different. And they treat uh, it didn't work. Customers. Yeah, I, I called the number, and I wasn't on hold for, I, I don't even say 30 seconds. And yeah. uh, within two minutes, it was working. So, yeah, yeah. I know business. If you have bus- if you want, get business. It's a little more money. Actually, it's not. They it's don't, not really all, that much more money. Business has no limit. I've business got 90, no limit. it's $90 a month for just the internet. And, right. uh, but it's what do you get? Fifteen megabits? Uh, so no, I think it's more than that. I'd have to look it up, yeah, but so I, it's you, I'm happy. And it has no limits. No, they will not call you at seven o'clock in the morning to tell you you've used too much bandwidth. Um, but you pay a lot more money for it. So that, what bothers me is that they treat their consumer side, you know, as if like we well, you know, you're bothering us. <laughs> yeah. Before we and wrap- I must admit I wasn't happy. The phones and the and the, I mean I'm happy with the uh, TV, but that's another story. Before we wrap up this um, segment, I have this little game that I'm going to start playing with all the guests, Owen, and you're the first guinea Uh-oh. pig. I call it this or that. <laughs> it's a uh, and it, it's kind of self-explanatory. It's this or that. I'll say two things, and you either you know you pick one. So if I said okay. you know blue or green, you you'd say which color you like better, green. You can elaborate, you know. It's not a yes or no. It's not. It's not true or false. It's it's your opinion. Okay. Okay. So we'll start with an easy one. I think it's easy. Software or hardware? Software. Software. Hmm. Software. Yeah. I think. Uh, I think hardware differentiation is going to disappear. I mean, look, it already has. The, my power. My MacBook Pro sitting here is a PC, right? My PC is a Mac. They, With the exception of you have to tweak, they both run the same softwares. Yeah. So what differentiates the box? The software, not the hardware. Now, 
don't don't let me say that the that the physical design and the industrial design is not better on those they're much more cool but i don't call that hardware it's the hardware to me is the the logic and the the circuitry yeah, yeah. inside so that no there's yeah. no wrong answers in this <laughs> there's I'm no just wrong talking answers about why i picked soft software is the digit makes things with what's make we'll go back to the pre why didn't you like the pre software is not as cool as an iphone there you go. You know what? It's almost the same hardware. Next one, OS 10, Windows 7. Oh, that's a tough one because they're, I hate to say they're both good now. <laughs> did, I, did I just say that? A lot of, a lot of Mac users, Windows. you know, I think the people that are most impressed with Windows, with Windows, Windows 7, 7, is Mac users. Mac. And Look, they stole a lot. Well. <laughs> they really did. I you mean, don't say. <laughs> and, and again... And again, and Windows 7 is, in fact, we talked about this before we started. If you looked at my Windows 7 machine right now, it looks like a Mac because I've just put themes and stuff on it and, and a, a thing called Rocket Dock, which is the dock at the bottom. And it, people think I'm running a big Mac machine, but it's a Windows machine. Windows 7 is, is very good. I happen to like OS 10 slightly better. I think the new version is, is phenomenal. It's fast. But you know what? Microsoft did the same thing to Windows that Apple did to snow leopard they basically cut all the fat a lot of the fat out of it windows 7 boots fast applications launch fast i'm not anti-windows like i used to be this is i am not either and, i i have from to say vista, and from vista which was real crap this is a real leap for 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 microsoft i have to give them credit i I never thought I would get off of XP, and I couldn't get off it fast enough when I saw Windows 7. Well, I tell you, the, the machine that I'm using right now is running Snow Leopard, obviously. But uh, okay. I do have Boot Camp on here, and Windows 7 is on the other side. It runs really well on VMware and Parallels. Another review I'm working on for my Mac. Just a quick plug there. So. <laughs> Next one. Apple or Atari? Oh, boy. They both hold... I can't pick one of those. They they both were just phenomenal times in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So if I had to go by the time when I was there, I couldn't pick one. If I if you asked me today, Apple. You know, Atari's not what it used to be, but Wow, no. Uh, they're doing they're although Atari's got some new stuff coming out, which I can't talk about. Um some cool things. So watch watch for some new online stuff from Atari, some very slick stuff. Uh the last two Okay. Uh, the first one's going back in time, and the last one's now and looking ahead. Okay. So, coin op or home console? Huh. So, back then, no, I, I'm going to do a plug. Nolan Bushnell asked me once what made arcades so cool. Okay. Coin op games. Why were they so cool? And it's because you could go get this environment you couldn't get at home. Right. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. There was no way you could get that. You, you know, way you get that except that consoles got really good. Xboxes, PS3s, you know, Wii's. And all, they became to the point where that, and you put them on a big screen. Now you have that, that same thing at home. And, so consoles became. But you also now have the interactivity with other people. That's right. And you have the interactivity with other people. Although remember, most coin op games were one player, but there were multiplayer. So coin op transitioned to home. So. The question is, what's the next coin-op? That's really the question for me. What, what do you do to get out of the home, to get it, you know? I, mean, I thought 3D movies was going to be that, but now I was at, I was at uh, Fry's the other day, 
and there was a 3D monitor. You put the glasses on, you watch a 3D movie on your high-def TV. Wow. So mm. It was real. Cool. So um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a continuation, coin up to home. It just was a straight line. And no ones were better, although I do miss going to arcades and playing on machines with custom controls and stuff. I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Last one, Safari or Firefox? Um, God, if you had asked me that six months ago, I would have said Firefox. Today, I don't run Firefox. I run Safari. Why? Um, something has happened to Firefox in the last six months that it has become incredibly unstable. It seems to crash a lot. It hangs. Uh, and Safari, on the other hand, has become an incredibly strong browser. Uh, it's missing one feature that drives me nuts. I wish it would remember my windows and reopen them without me having to go up to that menu item and say, open last windows. Uh, but I find Safari a lot more stable on both Windows and Mac than I do Firefox today. Owen, so I'm, I'm actually back on Safari. Owen Rubin, where could the listeners find more information about you? If they're, if they're going to do the um, Google or... Because your, your you personal Google website, I know today. you... Yeah, the first one is your, your personal website, which you don't actually update yourself. <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah. So this was done. This is going to sound sound conceited. This was done by a fan. Uh, of major guy, havoc. I, of major havoc. Well, what happened is I bought when in the early days when web was just coming about, I said, "Oh, I should get a domain." So I got domain. And I stuck a single page up there for myself. Uh, called it the World of Owen Rubin, and it was one page, and it really sucked. And I get this phone call from this guy who goes, "I'm a real fan of your stuff, and your page really sucks." <laughs> so. <laughs> I said, yeah, well, I really don't have time to write a web page. He goes, I'll do it for you. So he built this very cool site. I bet his name is Brian. Brian, yes. Brian was, Brian was very cool. Um, and he, um, he still watches it, although he's become so busy, he can't do anything with it. And I noticed it hasn't been updated really since, what, 2007? Is that yeah, that's what August? it says. Yeah. It, says, it says August 16, 2007. That's not true. We did update a little bit of stuff. We just didn't update that page. But I don't have access to the server, so I can't change it. But uh, www.orubin.com .com, has a lot of great content in there on the old Atari and Bally days. If you're a coin-op or game fan, there's I have a, people would send me email, ask about stories they heard. I would write the stories and post them back to the website. So if you want to hear all about the coin-op space days and about what we did and all the craziness there, great stories there. Um, second, if you want to follow me well, the second, today... Well, the second Google is uh, My Mac Magazine. Right. I was going to say, if I write a lot on My Mac, not as much as I should. You know, I hear the publisher gets upset about that. <laughs> I heard he used to. Uh, he used to. <laughs> uh yeah, I, should, I need to write more, and I've got a stack of products on my desk that I need to get to um, this time of year, which is busy for me. But uh, I love doing that, and I thank you, Tim, for the opportunity to do that. That has been a lot of fun. Um, Number three so, yeah. is uh, the Atari Museum. Oh, well, the Atari Museum is where my Mac, I mean, where um, orubin.com is, is, um, is actually hosted. Ah, okay. So, I've, so they got you two times in there, don't they? Yeah, Kurt, the guy who runs Tar Museum, hosts this for me, but I also write there. And then you can find me at Edison Labs, www.edisonlabs, all one word, .net, which is this new company. And 
Sadly, that's a bunch of brand new hand-built pages because we got majorly hacked last week, mm. and I had to take the whole website down. We had a very cool, we had a very cool, fun website up there, and it has gone away. But it, stuff will come back, and you can find out what I'm doing there. And and I'm also on uh, LinkedIn and Facebook. Owen, thanks a lot, my friend, for uh, coming on uh, the new OWC radio show with me. I appreciate it. I appreciate. I didn't get to plug OWC, did I? Plug away. We're out. Of, you you told out of time. you told me of a little story. We we've got enough time. We're at fifty seven so minutes. I have to tell so one go quick story. Okay, one quick story on OWC, and this is and and when I heard you were going there, I was pleased because it's a very cool company. Um, we were over at a couple friends' house, and the woman has a power book, twelve inch power book that she loves. I own one. I, I won't get rid of it. It was one of the coolest Macs ever. It's small, compact, not air-like. It was a full-powered machine with a DVD drive and everything, but it's tiny. Um, and she was showing it to me, and she was running 10.4 on it, and it was just dog slow. It just, I mean, it just looked bad. So I looked at the about on there, and she had 256 meg in it. Okay, just <laughs> not enough to run, run Tiger. OS 10. And it, oh, running Tiger, and it was just... It was just tempo four. I was just slamming the hard disk constantly for. So I said, "Well, you need to add more memory to this." And you know, she goes, "Look, I'm not comfortable washing the keyboard, kind of thing." She didn't. She really didn't want to touch the computer. So I said, "You know, go to Other World Computing. It's MacSales.com. Go there. Look to put your computer name in. It'll show you what your memory options are. Buy the most you can buy." And she says, "Well, are you going to come do this for me?" I said, "I'll only come do this if you don't feel comfortable doing it." And about. Oh, I don't know, about three weeks later, she calls me and says, oh, my God, my computer is so fast. It, it runs so much greater because now it's got all this memory in it. And she was able to do it herself because the instructions and, and little video things, the little picture things that show you how to change the memory were so easy for her. This is a non-technical person that they took her husband's machine and they upgraded it. It was a white uh, i4 PowerBook. They upgraded that, a G4 PowerBook. They upgraded that one as well. And he said that it was like getting a brand new machine. Awesome. I can't believe how fast it runs. So, uh, yeah, I highly recommend if you need memory and you're afraid to do it, go there because it, she's not technical and she did it. She knocked it out. She said the instructions were real easy. And then she was even pleased. I guess she sent the memory, the old memory back and got a small rebate. So it made the the price even a little bit cheaper. So. Well, we're putting those installation videos up. Um well, for not just the that. newer machines, but but the older ones as well. In fact, right now so I, I'm going to get even easier. Yeah, absolutely. Because right now I'm actually editing together some uh, PowerBook G4 installation videos for hard drive and uh, optical drives and memories. So I mean, yeah, uh, there's a lot of people using those machines out there, and we want to be yeah. able to uh, supply this kind of information to them. And it's and people are typically scared to open their machine, and I can understand why. It's a big investment. But if you follow. If you follow the instructions and you look it over, and now I'm so pleased to hear you're doing videos, Tim. I think it's, the, it's great because those people who were afraid before can be taken step by step through doing it. And you know what? If you're careful, you take your time and you don't rush it, it's trivial. You, anybody can do memory. And to be honest, the newer computers from Apple make it even easier. Absolutely. Even well, easier again, thanks a lot for coming on, Owen. And um, Thanks we'll, for having me. We'll have you on again here real soon. We'll see you in San Francisco. Yeah, in fact, maybe I'll crash your podcast. Well, you know, the, we, we are <laughs> podcasting at the Macworld Expo on Saturday, the very last thing on the main stage. So Yeah, I know. Can we heckle you from the audience? You can. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. I Thanks, appreciate Owen. it. And that's the show right there, folks. 
I hope you enjoyed the interview with Owen Rubin. And uh, what'd you think of the this or that? Something that we're going to do with our guests. You know, and I could use some help on the this or that. If you have a, a some cool this or that's that I could ask the people that we interview, by all means, send them in. Podcast at maxsales.com. And uh, we have some other interviews coming up, including Adam Angst, he with Tidbits. We have Peter Cohen, Jim DeRimple, Harry McCracken, Chris Breen. Some pretty big names there. If you're into Macintosh computers and uh, the intranets, those names should ring a bell. And that's just January, folks. This is just getting the show kicked off. So we've got some uh, some fantastic guests, and I could use some questions for the this or that segment. So with that, we're going to wrap up the show again. Podcast at maxsales.com for your feedback. Follow us on Twitter. It's at OWC Radio. And, of course, our number is 801-938-5559. You can leave your audio commentary that way or record it on your iPhone and send it that method as well. So we're, uh, we're out of here. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>